0: and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. One of the classic critiques of Christianity is that if God is completely good and completely loving, why did he create a creation where that is not reflected? We have so many things wrong with this creation. We are currently in the midst of a pandemic in which over 200,000 Americans today have died, over a million people across the world. It's this random, awful virus that's just killing people right and left. As of today, we are still in an election year. There is a lot of political strife in our country. People are angry at each other. People are dismissive of each other, unkind to each other. And what's more, we live in a world where there is all this history of violence and bloodshed and cruelty. There's the Holocaust, there are the Crusades, there's all kinds of awful stuff that's happened We have, as well, natural disasters. There are typhoons and tsunamis and earthquakes that kill hundreds and thousands. So if this is the production of a completely good God, why did he choose to stray so far from his nature? Why would someone completely good create something that is such a weird mixture of good and bad? And the fathers of the church would answer, He didn't. That in fact, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we see God's plan A, the creation that God actually created. And in this creation, everything works. Everything is in harmony. Everything is in unity with God. So the natural world is this place of peace and abundance and beauty. There's no violence in Eden. There is no Privation, there is no hunger, there is no sickness, there is no suffering, and there is no death. There are no political rivalries or factions, there are no pandemics, there are no tsunamis and typhoons. All of these things that we object to as the problem with this theory of a good God, these are actually not part of God's good plan for the world. So you have this garden full of animal and vegetable life. And then on the sixth day of creation, you have the creation of human beings. And human beings are meant to be this kind of intermediary figure between the creation and the creator. So they are not the creator, they're not gods, but they walk with God in the cool of the evening. They have this closeness, this friendship, this loving relationship with God that's unlike anything else in the creation. And then they are given dominion over the creation. They are meant to be the stewards, the caretakers, and the lords of the creation, of the animals, of the trees, of the plants, of the field, of the fish, of the birds humanity is not alienated from nature in any way nature and humanity there is no nature versus man theme in genesis in chapters one through three so humanity and creation are are perfectly in harmony and in unity humanity and god are in perfect harmony and unity and then humanity and humanity are in perfect harmony and unity adam and eve uh, work together as one So, these things that we see as the problems of the world, the the way in which the natural world, be it cancer, be it a hurricane, attack us and kill us, the way that we attack and kill each other, these are not problems in God's plan A, in God's original design for the creation. And we, these intermediary figures, these, these human beings, we are made in God's image and likeness. So, when you look at a human being, you see, in a sense, the image of god or the image of god rests within us and then also the likeness of god we are like unto god we partake of his goodness of his creative ordering activity of his peace of his joy of his love like we we are partakers and participants in all these marks by which we know god so human beings are these in a sense perfect creatures living in this perfect place And what happens? Well, the serpent comes along, and he talks to Eve, and via Eve, Adam, and he convinces them that it's really not perfect here. In fact, you are too subordinate to God. You shouldn't be thinking so much about God. You should be thinking about yourself. You, yourself, could be the kind of God figure in this story, and wouldn't that be a better story? So all you have to do is eat this fruit and it's going to open your eyes it's going to grant you knowledge and you will be like god you will know the difference between good and evil and so they take this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat it they have nothing to gain and everything to lose and they choose everything to lose it's option b just as an aside if you look at a renaissance painting of this moment happening you'll see Adam and Eve and the serpent, and then the fruit which they're being offered is almost always an apple, but that's actually not in the text. This convention comes from kind of a Latin play on words. So, when St. Jerome is translating the Old Testament into Latin, he notices that there is this fruit that is bad, and in Latin, malum means apple, and malum can also mean wrong or bad. So in calling it an apple, it's sort of like this this little play on words. It's both bad and it's a fruit, but it's not actually an apple. In any case, they take the fruit, they eat of the fruit, and in fact their eyes are opened, and they do know evil and good. Before, they didn't know evil at all. All they knew was good. And through this act of turning against God, of rebelling against God, of breaking one of god's only commandments that he has given them in the garden they fall and before this they had such a tremendous amount of freedom such a tremendous amount of of kind of pure joy of living in this beautiful peaceful place where they themselves and god and everything was just kind of full of peace and joy and love and they had this one commandment that they had to follow This one fast that they had to keep, eat of any tree of the garden except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was exactly the one they went to. They had everything to lose, nothing to gain, and that's what they did. And for the fathers, this was not strictly a question of how humans came to encounter death, how humans came to be creatures that died instead of creatures that lived, Uh, this was a change in the whole nature of creation because humans were this necessary intermediary between God and the natural world. They were meant to have dominion over the world. They were meant to be the kind of priest of creation that offered back to God uh, that which God had created. So, they were the sort of, um, they were a microcosm of the creation and they existed in this essential role between God and the creation. And when they rebelled against God, then the whole creation was allowed to rebel against God as well. So water goes from something that cleans and refreshes and purifies to something that can drown you. Bacteria presumably go from something that live in a symbiotic relationship and help you process food to something that's actively trying to kill you. And lions and tigers and bears go from being furry friends to being predators of humanity. In the garden, you see Adam and Eve acting with perfect accord, with perfect love. And then immediately afterwards, you see Cain and Abel, one trying to kill the other. And strife between humans becomes normal. War becomes normal. Bloodshed becomes normal. Betrayal becomes normal. All because of this one moment when humanity decided to turn our backs on God. For the fathers of the church, all humanity is in a sense contained within Adam. We might think about it in modern terms as though the DNA for all humanity is in Adam's DNA. Kind of the whole future of the human species is contained within him. He is the whole of humanity personified and the origin of humanity. Here we might have to take a tiny bit of a rabbit trail into the question of Adam and Eve. Were they real people? Were they actually the first people? Were they the first people in the garden? Were they the first people that had a consciousness of God or a relationship with God? Were they the origin of every single human that is? If so, then when they leave the garden, how did they get wives for their children? As people living after the Enlightenment, we have this Very intense need to know is this historical fact, which we equate with truth, or is this just a story? But when we're speaking in religious terms, the truth that we're looking for is not primarily just a question of historical fact. So there can be a historical fact like the date when Texas was founded that really doesn't contain much religious truth for us. You know, if it's 1836, if it's 1886, if it's 1729, that doesn't really tell you very much about God. That doesn't give you any sort of religious truth. It may be an absolutely set, fixed historical fact, but it doesn't really enlighten you in any way about who you are in relationship to God, what God wants from you. Conversely, you can have something like one of Jesus' parables. And in none of the parables does Jesus say there was actually a farmer, and his name was Larry Jones, and he lived in uh, rural Kansas in the 1840s, and on February 16th, 1847, he went out to sow. And he broadcast his seeds everywhere, and some of them fell on their path, and some of them fell among thorns. Like, the the fact that there was never actually a farmer that did this, or the fact that there actually was a farmer that did this, that in no way impacts the truth of one of the parables of Jesus, because they're meant to tell religious truth. With all of them, he's saying, to what shall we compare the kingdom of heaven? Not, here's a, here's a neat factoid, you know, file this one away in case it ever comes up on Jeopardy! He's trying to tell you about your relationship to God. God's will for humanity, uh, where we're headed in terms of our relationship with God. So, it's it's not that kind of truth. So, there are some stories in the Old Testament which are 100% based on historical fact, but through those historical facts, God is teaching us about himself. He is revealing himself to us. There are other things in the Old Testament, like the Psalms, like the Song of Songs, that are in no way claimed to be historical fact. They're poetry that people wrote, and God is using that poetry to reveal himself to us, to teach us about himself. And there are lots of things that are somewhere in between. So if there were two people at the beginning of time, the first two Homo sapiens sapiens were actually named Adam and Eve. And this is the story of how those first two Homo sapiens sapiens came to be the people that we know today in terms of our species. That's great. If there were never two specific Homo sapiens sapiens named Adam and Eve, but instead Adon as it does, just means man in Hebrew. And this is a huge statement about what it is to be a human being, what God intended for the creation, what the creation was initially like, etc., etc. But it's not a biography of two specific individuals who lived in the ancient Near East X number of hundreds of thousands of years ago. That also doesn't really matter. What matters is the truth that God is trying to convey to us through this story. So, whether this is more like a parable, whether this is more like a history, I don't find a super pressing question. And I'm sure I'll find out on the other side of the tomb, and I'll say, ah, well, that explains that one. But that's not really what we're talking about here today. Just a little aside. So, Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit, and they fall, and the whole creation falls. They rebel against God, and the whole creation, when they are absent from their intercessory role, the whole creation begins to rebel against God. And if God is the source of all life, if God is the source of all being, then if you are rebelling against all life, if you are rebelling against all being, the only places to go if you want an alternative to God are non-being and death. And so death is ushered into the creation. But death is not God's creation. God didn't say on the 8th day, and now let us create death. That never happened. Death is what the creation does when it wants to run away from god death is the ultimate rebellion against god non-existence is the ultimate rebellion against the source of all being himself and if you look at early rabbinic literature they will talk about how death and satan and the cause of all sin these are exactly the same thing there is no distinction between these three things so, when St. Paul says that the final enemy overcome by Christ is death, he doesn't mean that in a sort of metaphorical sense or like, oh, he came back from the dead, so, you know, that one's, that one's done. He's actually speaking literally that death is the enemy of God. So God did not create a creation in which everybody was bound to die, in which everyone was bound to suffer, in which the natural world was bound to create cancers and hurricanes and earthquakes. Instead, God created a creation in which everyone was bound for love and joy and peace and harmony and beauty. But this one act of rebellion shifted all of that. And so if you want to take Christianity in its own terms, you have to ask the question not, why did God make a creation where there is suffering, where there is evil, where there is death? Because he didn't in terms of the Christian story. You'd have to ask, why did God create a creation in which there was the possibility of suffering, the possibility of evil, the possibility of death entering into creation as a rebellion against God? And even more, why does he allow it to stick around? So God doesn't actually want the fear of humankind. And God also doesn't actually want the obedience of humankind. God doesn't want a bunch of scared slaves, nor does he want a bunch of marginally committed hired servants. What God wants, Jesus tells us, are sons, sons and daughters, children of God the Father who are motivated not through fear of God, not through fear of being beaten, not through a desire for pay or reward, or the fear of the reward being withheld from them, but through love. He wants men and women and children who love him. And the thing about love is that it's very hard to compel. So I can certainly scare you into giving me your wallet if I hold you up with a weapon or something. Or I can say, you know, if you give me your wallet, if you give me that paltry twenty dollars, I promise to give you this huge stack of hundred dollar bills, and I'll just I'll buy that wallet. I'm a wallet collector, and that looks like a really nice wallet. So why don't I give you eighty thousand dollars in exchange for your wallet? I can I can buy your wallet from you. I can reward you into giving me your wallet. But if instead my goal was not to get something that you own, but to make you fall in love with me. How would I go about that? Could I go up to you and say like, I'm gonna beat you up unless you fall in love with me right now. I don't think anyone has ever fallen in love under those sorts of circumstances. I also don't think that if I said, I will give you $5 if you fall in love with me right now, even $500 or $5,000 or even $5 million that you could just fall in love with me on command. Like, I, I don't even know what that would look like. That's sort of an absurd thing to think about. Because love can't be compelled through threat nor through reward. Love is always a free gift. So, someone just falls in love with someone else because they do. But it is, it's a, a free gift that has to be given freely. Otherwise, it's, it's literally not love. And so, if God only wanted our obedience... He could scare us into obedience. He could reward us into obedience. Certainly if he wanted our fear, that would be easy. He would just show himself in all his hugeness and glory, and we'd be like, ah, don't squash us. But if he wants our love, how does he go about it? Well, he has to give us this gift of freedom if he wants us to respond in love. Because again, love can't be compelled. So in freedom, we have to have the freedom to either choose God or choose to turn away from God. There is no way to have an unfree situation for humanity in which we can actually love God. And so rather than setting up a world in which God has a bunch of robots which look like humans, which are actually incapable of making any free choices and always choose the right thing, he creates us. He creates these relatively free beings who can actually say, Today, I'm going to go give a blanket to a cold homeless person, or today, I'm going to go steal a blanket from a cold homeless person. Like, we actually have these choices, and we make these choices under the given circumstances in which we find ourselves. And so God created a world in which there is a possibility of death, the possibility of suffering, the possibility of the fall, through creating a world in which there is the possibility of love. And you really can't have one without the other. But why would he allow a world in which we do make the wrong choice, and he just allows it to stick around? Okay, you made the wrong choice. You're going to have to live with it. You made your bed. Now sleep in it. That, said the fathers of the early church, was where Jesus comes in. So last time we talked about this generation of the apostolic fathers. We talked about Ignatius of Antioch and a little bit about Polycarp of Smyrna. And now we're going to talk about one generation further into the future. So you have the generation of the apostles, like St. John the Evangelist. You have people that St. John taught, like St. Polycarp and St. Ignatius. And then you have the students of Polycarp and Ignatius. So today I want to talk about Irenaeus of Lyon. And Irenaeus was the student of Polycarp. He was born in modern-day Turkey. He was known as a habitué of Polycarp's house. He sat at the feet of Polycarp and heard the gospel from Polycarp's lips. So he's three generations removed from the actual generation of the apostles. He goes off to Rome at some point and later goes to Gaul in modern-day France in Lyon and is ordained first a priest, a presbyter, and then a bishop. And so Irenaeus, as Bishop of Lyon, writes several really important books, two of which survive. And one, Against Heresies, is this kind of first huge, uh, almost systematic statement of the Christian faith. It's not a systematic theology. It's not trying to sort of take point by point everything that God did in the world and talk about how he did those things. Instead, the goal of Against Heresies is really to argue against two specific heresies. But in doing so, He addresses all sorts of theological points. And so, we have this amazing, deep record of second-century apostolic theology from someone who's in this direct train of teaching from St. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, to St. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who was his student, to Irenaeus, who was the student of Polycarp. And for Irenaeus, the point of Jesus' incarnation and life and passion, and death, and resurrection, and ascension, is this return to the Edenic state for humankind, this return to harmony with God, harmony with nature, harmony with one another, the return through humanity of all creation to God's plan A, to get off this plan B of strife, and death, and illness, what the Church Fathers, what Irenaeus calls corruption, Ignorance and death, the three outcomes of the fall, and to return us to this place of perfect oneness with God and with our neighbor. He does this, Irenaeus tells us, through what he calls recapitulation. And recapitulation is kind of the summing up of all things and their re-presentation. So this is a term that St. Paul uses once, but it's a term that's really important in uh, classical rhetoric. So the recapitulation is at the very end of your argument, you take all the points you made and you sum them up and you present them to the jury or to the judge or to the person you're debating or whatever it is. And so Irenaeus says that Christ is the recapitulation of humanity. He takes all of humanity, kind of sums it up in himself, and represents humanity in a different way, changes the whole of humanity. So, the whole of humanity was contained within Adam, and now the whole of the true humanity, the new humanity, is contained within Christ. St. Paul talks about Christ as the second Adam, and this, according to Irenaeus, is what he means, that the whole of human nature is redefined in Christ and by Christ. The whole of humanity fell through one man, says Irenaeus, and the whole of humanity is redeemed through one man. The first Adam listens to the serpent and eats and falls. The second Adam, the Christ, when he is baptized and driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, he confronts the enemy, he confronts the serpent again. And this time, when the serpent says, eat, he refuses. So for the first Adam, the serpent says, eat, but he had literally nothing to gain by it. And so he said, yeah, sure, why not? The second Adam, Christ, has everything to lose by not eating. He is 40 days in the wilderness without eating. And the enemy comes and says, look, you gotta think about your health. You gotta have something to eat. How about a little snack? How about just a little loaf of bread? And Christ says, man does not live by bread alone. So he turns away from the enemy. He overturns this moment of the fall in this recapitulation of humanity. The ultimate example of this for Irenaeus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ is in agony, we're told that his sweat falls like great drops of blood, and he is thinking of the coming crucifixion, of the nails being driven into his flesh, of his horrible death on the cross, and he, life himself, he through whom all things were made, God the Son, dying, being swallowed up by the opposite of God, the rebellion against God, non-existence, the enemy, the source of all sin this kind of, this temporary triumph of death itself over God the Son. And in horror at all of this, his humanity cries out, if this cup can pass from me, then let it pass from me. But then his humanity almost answers in accord with his divinity, not my will, but thy will. So, in Christ, the human will and the divine will are completely united. They're in lockstep. His will is God's will, and God's will is his will. And there's this complete and total overturning of Adam's desire to put himself first, his will first. It's an overturning of this human nature to be self-worshiping, self-idolizing, and Christ in this moment presents us with a human who is actually recognizing God as the center of the universe and not himself. Though, of course, he does this by also being God. He is fully God and fully human. So, it is these two wills in Christ that are acting in absolute unity, in absolute accord you can kind of think about two different strains in the theology of the crucifixion of Christ. And one is this theology of propitiation. So, this is a term that doesn't really get used in the Bible very much, but Paul uses it in Romans 3.25. And this verse became really influential. So, in King James' language, it is, "...whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past." through the forbearance of God. So this verse becomes really important in the Protestant Reformation and there's the sense that in Christ's sacrifice he is making this kind of like blood offering to appease the wrath of God. That God is this kind of um, angry being who wants to destroy but he will accept this blood sacrifice in lieu of the destruction of humanity. He wants to pour out his wrath upon humankind, but instead of pouring out his wrath on humankind, he takes this blood offering. But it's interesting that if you actually look at the Greek of this text, St. Paul doesn't say propitiation. He doesn't actually say this Greek word for an angry God who accepts a blood offering and then withholds his wrath. Instead, what he says is the mercy seat. That Christ becomes the mercy seat for us. Christ becomes the top of the Ark of the Covenant, from which mercy was proclaimed, from which atonement, unity with God, overcoming alienation from God, takes place. So there's this theology of the propitiation, which becomes very important in uh, kind of 16th century, 17th century reform theology. But for the early church fathers would have been a completely alien, bizarre idea. Because that's how paganism worked not how Christianity worked. So, in Christianity, for the early church fathers, what Christ does is not offer a blood offering to God that keeps God from being wrathful towards humanity. What Christ does is this recapitulation of humanity, summing up all humanity in himself, and then as, as the recapitulation of all humanity, dying and going down to death and confronting death confronting all rebellion against God, confronting he who is the source of all sin, confronting Satan himself. For Irenaeus, Christ's statement in Matthew about if you want to despoil the strong man's house, you have to first tie up the strong man and then you can steal his goods, is about what happens after the crucifixion. That as St. John Chrysostom says, death swallows a body but it actually receives God. Like he thinks he's just taking a body, another human being, but instead he takes God into himself. And because God is so full of life and goodness and being and light, the darkness and the constriction and the emptiness and the nothingness of death simply cannot hold him and death is destroyed. So the strong man is tied up, and then Christ can despoil his house, take all of his goods. But these are not gems and precious cups and the silverware and the TV. The goods of death are humankind. So, in early icons of the resurrection, it's Christ bursting forth from the tomb, and in one hand he has Adam, and in the other hand he has Eve, and behind them, trailing, holding their hands, are all humanity, all being brought up out of the tomb. It is the defeat of death and sin and evil and the enemy for all time. And so, the fathers will constantly go back to this Old Testament passage, he has taken captivity captive. Like, death himself is dead. Captivity himself has been taken captive and is captured. So, in the same way that Adam fell and all humanity fell in Adam, Christ defeats death. And so, all humanity defeats death in the victory of Christ. And this is the significance of the resurrection. This is why Easter is the most important day on the Christian calendar and the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity, which is that the enemy, sin, evil, death itself, is destroyed, no longer has power over us. So, rather than the Reformed, the kind of uh, 16th century, 17th century Protestant focus on the father had this beloved son who he gives up to death so that we don't die, that is kind of de-emphasized for the fathers. That's um, That's certainly present and that's certainly part of the gospel, but that's not the whole story. The kind of primary emphasis is on the fact that God the Son is God, and God is actually giving of himself to destroy death, to free us, and to bring us back into unity with him. And so, if you ask Irenaeus or some of the later fathers like St. Gregory of Nyssa, what is salvation? This is what they would point you to salvation is easter salvation is the coming return of christ salvation is the final judgment salvation is all the dead being raised and being ushered into the presence of god salvation is the work that christ undertook in his incarnation and life and passion and death and resurrection and ascension and last judgment so this this is salvation in the early church and i think this is a very different definition than we sometimes hear in modern Christianity. So next time we'll look a bit more at the theology of this early church period and think about some other variations from what we often hear in Christianity these days. It's been great being with you to explore the history of Christianity, and uh, I will see you next time. Thanks.